Awesome. Well, how are we all doing? Feeling pretty tired? Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> sounds like it. Um, look, I, I thought we might begin today just by recapping a little bit of what we're doing. So we've been in the book of 1 John for a while now, yeah? And so I thought we, what we might do is uh, just for um, a little while, uh, recap a little bit because John, John isn't uh, the type of writer that we're used to reading, right? Most writers we read are very structured, they're quite chronological, they pride themselves on being really clear. Uh, John, if you've kind of realized over the last few weeks, he's actually a lot more, not random, but cyclical in nature, right? Like he kind of goes in circles and circles and circles. And so when we read um, verse 7, when we read verse 7, and it says, it starts with, Dear friends, let us love one another. What I'm hoping you're, go- you're going as we're reading this is you're, you're kind of going, hey, hang on, hang on. Didn't we look at this already? Didn't we look at this already? And you'd be right in thinking that. In fact, we've looked at this theme in John a number of times already. Uh, and in fact, if you recall, Pastor Pete introdu- introduced to us a few weeks ago that uh, love is one of the broad themes of this book. Right? In the first theme um, that John kind of introduces is this theme that God is light. That's kind of comprised in the first half of this letter. And then in the second half of the letter, John moves to talking about God is love. But to kind of repeat again what Pete introduced way, way back, is that not only are there two halves, broad halves, there are also three reoccurring circular points that are happening in it as well. Right? So three circular points that consist of three tests, and these tests act as litmus tests almost, for the life of the believer, kind of like he, he, he's talked about the three-legged stool, all three need to be there for it to stand on the life of the believer. Who remembers all three? Mm, test. Other than Pete? <laughs> Obedience? <laughs> Other than Jono? <laughs> Obedience? <laughs> Truth and? Love. Love. Nice, nice, nice. So, three, so we've got the two broad halves, we've got the three tests, and so we've heard a lot about love already, right? That's what I'm trying to say. But tonight, or this afternoon, we're getting a double whammy of love. because We're all about love at this church. Uh, but we're, we're having a double whammy of love because we're in the second half of 1 John, which is about the theme of love, and we're looking at the love test again for the final time. So hopefully you're ready to hear a lot about love. And uh, I'm going to pray for us before we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our loving God, uh, that you care for one and all. Uh, Father, that you love us so much and so father as we sit under your word would you be speaking to us would we be willing to hear you would we be willing uh, for you to change us i pray that anything that might be in our minds what's happening afterwards what's happening on during the week father would you push that aside just for this little moment now and would we be receptive to your spirit speaking to us in jesus name i pray amen okay so how would you define love how would you define Love, it's one of those words that we kind of all know, right? And if you're not prepared for the question, it'll kind of take you a little while to come up with a decent response. Um, to give you some inspiration, I thought I'd share with you uh, how some kids aged between the ages of six and eight defined this word love. Ready? So Chrissy, she is six years old. She defines love as this. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. 
Danny, age seven, defined love as love is when my mummy, they're American, makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. So clearly food and love have to do, uh, food and drink have to do with love. Um, Karen, age seven, defines love as when you love somebody, this is so funny, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> Mark, age six, says love is when mummy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. <laughs> Pretty good, right? Pretty good. Lots of insight there. But maybe, maybe just a little bit more seriously. Rebecca, age eight, says love is when my grandmother got... Grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands have arthritis too. That's love. <laughs> so, what we, have, what we have in this is a broad spectrum of what love is, right? The point what I'm trying to make is, friends, is that there is an... I, I think John is arguing this too, that love defined by kids, but maybe more broadly, more deeply, defined by the world and what it believes love to be is only the tip of the iceberg of what love truly is. Remember the context that John is writing to, right? He's writing to a group of Christians who are being exposed, taught, and potentially deceived by a group of false teachers. And John is trying to tell them, how do you tell that these guys are legit? You've got to see what their love looks like. And so John, in this passage we're looking at, goes into great depth of what this love is and what this love looks like. And how we're going to look at it uh, this e afternoon is a bit more thematic um, than verse by verse, just because there's so much packed into this. There's no way we could go through it all, unfortunately. And so what we're, we're going to do this afternoon is look at three half-truths about love that I think our world believes in, and that I believe John specifically tackles through this passage. Three half-truths that the world we live in presumes and how God, I think, through John, shows us a bigger picture instead. And so the three half-truths are, if you want to write it down, that one, love guides our lives. Two, that love is a positive force in the world. And three, love is completely autonomous. Yeah? One, love guides our lives. Two, that love is a positive force in the world. And three, that love is completely autonomous. So we'll go straight to the half-truth. Number one, love guides our lives. You don't have to look very far, do you, to see that there's this view in the world that tells us that an attractive way to live is for love to guide you. It's for love to guide your life. It might be a person-based love. It might be uh, a work-based love. It might be a hobby-based love. There might be others. It might be a combination of all the above. But the, but the idea is this, is that these loves are meant to give shape to our life and guide us in the small and big decisions. Maybe it's something that you believe for yourself. This idea really came through when uh, I was leaving work uh, in the corporate world and I was going to start working for um, the previous church that I was in to do some youth ministry there. Then the most common statement at my farewell that was said to me, along, along the lines of something like this, they, they said, Dom, once they figured out it wasn't uh, the food pastor and, and the vocation pastor, <laughs> said, Dom, it's so great that you're deciding to do something that you love. You should do what makes you happy. Have you heard lines like this? There's something aspirational about that, isn't there? 
There's something about pursuing happiness in the things that we love that just feels warm, that just feels right. And when you hear that someone, for example, leaves everything behind to start a new life with someone on the opposite side of the world, it's endearing. When you find that someone's passion is how he or she have decided what they will do for a living, it's inspirational. So what does John think about this idea? Have a look from verse 7 and 8. We'll read it together. Verse 7 and 8. It reads, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Friends, what's clear in these two verses is that the Christian view of love finds its origins in God. He both is love and love comes from Him. John's wording is clear in verse 8, right? He says that love, love, it's not love is God. It's that God is love. And I want you to hear me out, right? Because if this is true, if the premise is true, then the logical implication must be that love, at least on its own, is not what dictates our lives and the decisions that we make. Because if God is truly the source and only source of love, then surely what dictates our lives is not love, but God. That's what John is saying. What and whom we love ought not to be put on a pedestal above all else and considered divine. But you might ask, right, but, but why is this idea of letting love govern how we live? Why does that seem so attractive then, Dom? It just feels so right, Dom. And perhaps, and this is just hazarding a guess, right, but perhaps letting love dictate and letting love govern our lives is precisely the way God intended it to be. But the key difference is that the love that governs our lives is not our definition of love, but God's. To put it another way, perhaps it is God-guided love that is meant to lead our lives, not some variation of a self-guided love. As an observation, right, church, we're dem- demographically, we're pretty young. We can fall in the danger of pursuing and making decisions in our lives in a way that can dangerously reflect this self-guided love. We want to do what gives us ultimate satisfaction. We want to study what gives us most joy. We want to be fulfilled in our relationships. All these things are great things on their own. And they're thoughts that, that are a privilege, really, that previous generations never even got to consider. But are we being led by God-guided love or our own? And so the natural question, right, to ask is, well, how do I tell? How do I tell whether I'm being led by my love and my self-guided love, my self-defined love, or God's love? What does God's love look like? How is it different? Go to verse 9. Verse 9 says, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? John is answering the very question that we're asking. Right? What, how is God's love different? Where does he go to illustrate that? He goes straight to Jesus. He goes straight to Jesus being sent into the world. But more specifically in verse 10, he goes and goes straight to Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, John points us to God's love. And where do we see that most clearly? We see that as Jesus comes into the world, in other words, his incarnation and his atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And maybe you can join the dots already, right? If we're talking about the incarnation, if we're talking about Jesus' atoning sacrifice, 
the theme that it links the two is sacrifice itself. If you think about Paul, when he writes the letter to the Philippians, he describes this sacrifice in, in Jesus' coming to earth, his incarnation, in other words, very strongly. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Paul's saying that Jesus sacrificed everything, even equality with God, being in nature with God, to make himself not just slightly less, not just a little bit worse, but absolutely nothing. Jesus was made in human likeness. Now, if you're not a believer here, that's a big deal. That God would leave everything and enter the world into something as little and as nothing as man. And so we see God's love through the sacrifice of Him entering the world, through the incarnation. But we see God's love even more clearly, don't we? In the atonement. God's love, in other words, is seen most clearly when He sees the sin in my life, when He sees the sin in your life. And instead of rightly condemning us and pouring His anger on us, He decides to, what? Send His one and only Son, Jesus, to satisfy His wrath. wrath. And, that, and that's what's happening on the cross. Right? At the cross, at the cross, as Jesus is dying, Christ is suffering for us as He suffers. Christ is dying for us as he dies. The crucifixion is pretty horrific. And maybe that's something you reflected on yourself just last weekend with Easter. But the fact is that many people in history have endured far greater. Many people in history have endured far worse physical suffering than Jesus. And so it isn't Jesus' physical suffering that demonstrates his love for us most, although it certainly does. But guys, please hear me, right? When you consider who Jesus is, who he is, that he is God himself, and then when you look at who we are, those who would naturally and have still to this day deny and reject him, and then you realize that on the cross, Jesus sacrificially bears God's anger that was ours to take for us and in our place. You can't help but go, whoa. That's God's love. That's what God's love looks like. That is what God's definition of love is. And so to answer the question, what does God's love look like? How is it different? Look at the incarnation. Look at Jesus entering the world. But, but perhaps more importantly, Look at the atonement and see God's sacrificial love for you. That is the type of love that ought to guide our life. And I pray that we would hear this afresh. And so guys, when we look at that, that sort of love, when we look at God's standard of love, God's definition of love, our best efforts of love, they just fall short, don't they? I mean, I wonder if you, we've noticed that instead of the sacrificial nature of God's love, we see how selfish maybe our attempts at love are. I mean, just think for an exercise, just for a moment, right? Any relationship that you might have it might be your spouse. It might be a friend. It might be someone at work. Why do you love, care, or relate to them? Is it because they might have something to give to you? Perhaps it's something that you want from them or like? Is it their appearance? that you're attracted to? Is it their wealth? Maybe their personality? Maybe their dreams that make you feel really positive? Right? It's all about the self in the end. Maybe it's the opinions that you share. Maybe you're attracted to how they care about you and love you back. Right? All these are reasons, and these are just up at the top of the list, right? Those are just some of the reasons that are, are quite selfish. 
And they're the reasons why we love people, aren't they? See, God's word says that on our own, our love is wrongly and tragically at root self-centered. Our ability to love has been corrupted right from the beginning of the universe. We are wrongly devoted to ourselves. But the good news is that as Jesus followers, we don't simply, we don't, we don't love others simply on our own anymore. Right? We've received God's amazing sacrificial love. That definition that we heard before, we've received that. And John now commands Christians to love others in the same way. As people who have seen and tasted this sacrificial love, we too can be tender and outgoing with our love. Right? We all have doppelgangers. Um, I'm sure people have told you that you look like certain people. Uh, Pete, for example, is a very toned sigh. Ed is uh, uh, the Asian Mr. Australia. And while I was on mission just in Canberra, actually, one of the things that I learned from a bunch of international students that probably wasn't as profound is that I looked like this bloke that's going to be on the screen. <laughs> Does anybody know his name? Dom, Dom thanks. Gary, right? Gary. His name's Kung Gary, apparently. I don't even know what Kung means. But apparently, if you watched, uh, he's, he's a singer of some sort. He's on this game show that he just, he just does stupid things in. Apparently, I look a lot like this guy. All these like, students from China kept up and said, and said, you look a lot like this Kung Gary guy. Um, so I'd never thought of that. Uh, maybe in the next picture, you, you think I look more like him. <laughs> that's not me. That's my brother. Uh, his name is Derek. Maybe you think I look like him. I don't see it either, but maybe you do. But people also say I look a lot like my mom and dad, like a combination of the two, somehow just merge together. Right, you be the judge, but here's the point, right? Just like our appearance reflects others, when we love others like God has loved us, we reflect the love and character of our Heavenly Father. One of the most profound ways to have hearts like God in heaven, according to John, is to love as He does. So if you're a Christian today, this is a half-truth, isn't it? Love does guide your life. But the question we've got to be asking is, whose love is guiding your life and your relationships? Is it your self-guided, self-centered love, or is it God's love that in His very being shown most clearly in Jesus? Is it that love, the selfless sacrifice of Jesus, that while we did not love Him, He loved us incredibly? So that's the first half-truth. The second half-truth is this, and these are a bit quicker, that love is a positive force. The love is a positive force in the world. Um, there are numerous studies done that show the impact that a love of a parent has on the positive development of a child. You guys all know that, right? right? If a parent loves a child, it, it, it's generally going to be a good thing for, for the child as they're growing up. Another thing uh, to consider is that's kind of going on in, in the press at the moment, this whole same-sex marriage debate that's happening. What that is rooted in is the desire to show and experience this positive love that they feel like they don't possess. that They feel like they, they have not been able to access because people are backwards or discriminatory and they want that. And so that's propelling a lot of what's going on. They want this positive love for themselves. And the world sees this love in that sort of way. Even as I was reading a Forbes leadership post, it describes this very thing. There was, there was a particular post written by a lady who uh, recounts her experience and, and is trying to give a lesson to the readers from her experiences of moving away from the corporate world and into becoming a family and marriage therapist. And there's a lot of wisdom in this article, right? But her main point bottled down to this, and I'm going to quote her. She writes, When you can find love and compassion in your heart, 
for the very things you hate in the world, you'll be freer to become a positive force impacting the world in beneficial ways. See, again, for her, the ability to show love, the ability to show compassion, what's it for? Ultimately, it's for the purpose of positively impacting the world. That love is somehow this force that can do that. And when you look at verses like 1 John 4, 18, right, at first glance, when you read something like perfect love drives out fear, that the one who fears is not made perfect in love, you would think that maybe the Bible has simply carbon copied this very same thought too. That the Bible speaks that if we simply love, if we just love people, we too can positively impact those around us and dispel all fear through our love. But that's not what's going on here. Right? Read, it again, read it closely again from verse 17 this time. From verse 17 to 18. In this way, John writes, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Dear friends, what John is trying to say here is that for the believer who lives in God's love, that is evidence. That is assurance that we have truly been saved. That, that's the whole love test, right? We've been talking about that. As, God, as we love as God loves, we are increasingly like Him, is the, is, is, the, is the thought. And so therefore, we have no need to fear punishment, particularly God's punishment. Because the Bible teaches that on the last days, that we're all going to stand before God, and we're all going to give an account of our lives, our deeds, and ultimately our decision to whether we follow Jesus or not. And John is saying to us as followers of Jesus, that if you have loved the way that God has shown us in Christ, be assured, because His love is being made complete in you, and you have every reason to be confident on that last day. See, church, it's not our love that drives out fear, is it? It's God's. God's love is the ultimate positive force. How do I know this, right? Just in verse 18, there's a little word there that says perfect. See, our, our love does very little, actually. But when we receive God's perfect love and live out God's love, that is when we no longer, no longer need to fear the ultimate punishment before God. So what is the implication of this for us? Well, I think what we need to do, guys, is relativize our fears. I don't know you, but about you, but I fear many things. Right? I fear things from large German shepherds uh, to crazy, crazy Asian drivers in Bankstown. Not everything we fear has equal value. Um, you may have seen Pete's post on Facebook this morning that a few, a few of the guys uh, rode bikes um, and we had coffee and we read the Bible together. Um, when I was young... I was actually terrified of riding the bike. I was absolutely terrified. Like I, got, I got the bike riding on the training wheels down pat. Um, I did that really, really well. And I did that until I was about like 10, I think. It's a bit late. A bit late. Um, <laughs> stop judging me. <laughs> but, and the reason, the only reason why I eventually got off my training wheels, off my training wheels when I was 10 was because my dad, um, he he basically forced it on me, right? He forced it down my throat. So I was, tr I was trying to avoid it. I didn't want to ride on, on two wheels. I put it off for ages and ages. And so w uh, one weekend, I specifically remember, uh, I used to play a bit of club soccer. Uh, my dad uh, deceived me. He said, we're going to play soccer. 
we're going to go to the park and we're going to play soccer. And what I didn't know is that he'd already loaded my bike into the back of the boot and closed it so I couldn't see it. And he'd already taken off the training wheels. And so what he did was he took my bike. When we got, when we got, to, the, when we got to the school that we normally use the field for to play soccer, he took out my bike. And I looked. <laughs> well, where's the training wheels? At home. Aren't we playing soccer? No. <laughs> can we go home? No, you're not leaving till, we, you, till you can ride. And so I was putting, I was crying. I was like, I was fully going, go away. I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. You're the worst dad ever. <laughs> and so what he, he, he just, he just stands his like, We're not leaving until you ride this bike. And so what he did was, if you're not going to get on, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take this bike and I'm going to put it at the top of a ramp <laughs> that goes into the car park of the school. And the only way to enter the car park is to turn left. Because if you don't turn left, you're going to smack into a wall. Right? And he says, Dom, you're going to get on this bike and I'm going to push. <laughs> now, I'm making my dad seem like a tyrant. Uh, it's because he was. <laughs> um, but basically, that's what I did. I, I, was, I, was, I was like sobbing. I was like getting on the... Uh, you can tell I'm still traumatized. And he, he, he put me on the bike and he said, Dom, you're going. Dom, you're going. And he just push. And so I'm going down this ramp, right? And what do you think happens? Like, I'm in front of me is a wall that if I don't figure out how to pedal and turn, I'm going to smash into. And so you just, by pure adrenaline, your feet start cranking, you start turning, and you make it into the car. I fell over afterwards, but I made it into the car park. And then I was no longer afraid of, of bike riding because I knew that I could actually pedal. I could do this. I just need to do it. And so the whole... The reason why I'm saying this is that often when you've got a greater fear in front of you, your lesser fears kind of just get sorted out. It just gets sorted out. And so friends, if the Bible is correct, then the greatest fear we have in this life is that we will be rightly and eternally condemned by God for the sin in our lives. If the Bible is correct. If the Bible is correct, it also says that the only solution is that there's one person who can who can and has taken away this greater, greatest of fears. And Jesus has invited all those who follow him into this victory that he has already won. See, for the Jesus follower, for the Christian, the greatest fear in this life is already defeated. And so church, doesn't that mean that these lesser fears should no longer cause us fear? Shouldn't that mean that those things that we obsess, stress, and be anxious over, maybe they mean a bit less to us than everybody else? Shouldn't we be free to be able to love others? See, it's so often that fear is what cripples us from loving others like God does, isn't it? Like the fear of awkwardness, perhaps, or the fear of difficulty, or the fear of relating to those that are different to us just in general, the fear of rejection, the fear of not knowing what to say. These are all things I've experienced. Maybe they're the same for you. In the light of the ultimate fear, though, that is addressed at the cross, surely all those fears at best seem trivial. It is God's perfect love that drives out the greatest fear of eternal condemnation. Then God's perfect love to us ought to also drive out those lesser fears. Right? God's love shown to us and shown through us is how we can be a positive force in this world. It's not on our own. It's not our love. It's God's love. And the third half-truth, so we looked at two. The third one is this, is that love is completely autonomous. Or in other words, your decision to love someone is entirely of your own accord. Now, at one level, right, this makes common sense. It's just, you know, 
Sure. We love those who we choose to love. We love those who are close to us. Those who are a bit further away, we, we, we love less. And there are strangers that we simply don't care about at all. Right? Of course, love is autonomous. But for the Christian, again, this is only half true, isn't it? Because there's a fuller sense of love. This is only going to be very brief. But the point is this. As Jesus followers, our initiative on our own to love people is not just some deliberated, independent decision. At a deeper level, it's obedience. But at a deeper level, when we choose to reach out and love people, it's not just something we've come up on our own, although that is true. At a deeper level, it's also obedience. Have a look at verses 20 to 21 with me. 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, underlying these verses, John is painting a picture that the Christian must logically love your brother and sisters. You have to. Because we can't claim to love what is unseen if we cannot love what is directly in front of us. John's saying that this is actually a command. We must also love our brother. And, and this isn't just some sort of semantic difference that you've got to remind yourself of. It's like, yeah, sure, I, as I'm loving Johnson, for example, God is like behind the curtain saying, I'm here. He's, he's not saying that. John is saying that this is a call to love more widely. It's a call to love more broadly. It's a call to love in a way that on our own, we naturally would not choose to do. And John knows that we naturally would not choose to do it, right? Just in this passage alone from verses 7 to 21, over half of it is explicitly about convincing the believer to look beyond ourself and to look at the very love of God as the reason we love other people. This is a countercultural love we're talking about. It's unnatural. It's uncomfortable to what the world knows and expects. And as Christians... Not only have we been taught about this controversial love, we've been shown it, haven't we? And we've been equipped for it. And so now we've got to do it. Again, we're, we're, we're a young church, right? And as young people, we fall sometimes into the world's mes message that love ought to be easy. That love ought to be spontaneous. And when it's not, you just bail. You run for the hill. Right? In the dating world, it's all about the spark. It's all about the chemistry. It's all about the whirlwind romance. In the friendship world, it's all about the connection and the similarities and how social one can be or not awkward. In both situations, it's all about what's easy, what's, what can be spontaneous. And I think for us who are Christians, who are young in age as well, perhaps, perhaps we know that we ought to be thinking differently to this. That we see the shallowness that's in that and we want to move beyond that. Our official thought, our official theology says that that's wrong. But unfortunately, and I speak for myself too, our actions show otherwise. Our actions of the mind and our decisions, our actions in our actual doing, show that we would rather stick with the easy and stick with the spontaneous. And God's word through John is challenging my mindset and my actions, and maybe yours too, that we ought to love counterculturally in light of God and the cross. And so church, to close, how do we redefine the world's love. How do we do that? How do we show that the world's love on its own is insufficient? I hope you see that, right? That the world on its own cannot love in the way God does. At best, their understanding is, is half-truths of the real thing. See, only those who know God can love the way God has defined it. 
The world can only go so far. To love the way God loves is, is our responsibility. It's the church's responsibility and privilege. Those who have received this love to show this love. So how do we, how do we apply this, right? Like I said, right at the start, we've looked at love plenty of times already in the book of 1 John. So I, I don't want to just repeat everything that John and Peter have said. And maybe, maybe we should maybe go a bit narrower in terms of our application today. Maybe we should love as a church in a way that the world might choose naturally to avoid. And I want to suggest that maybe we should be considering how we can be loving the difficult. Loving the difficult. See, the gospel points us there, doesn't it? The more we love those who we naturally just don't want to love, like those who are difficult, like those who might be our enemies, that love requires the love that we see at Calvary moving in us. Pastor Mark Dever um, says this. He says, Love the difficult, because surely that is the best analogy you have in your life to demonstrate how God has loved you. What a witness it would be, right? If, if God's, if, what a witness it would be to God's love if we were willing to put down our barriers, put down our fears, and instead take up our cross and love the difficult with this cross Calvary-shaped love. And guys, what this looks like will be different for all of us. It will, right? For some of us, it might be as simple as breaking out of the people we talk to each and every week at church. Right? Those that we might naturally avoid. Those that... Um, might be different either out of personality or different out of preference. Right? Maybe we've got to do that. For other v- others of us, it might be uh, maybe continuing or restarting a previous conversation that, that maybe has revealed difficulties and that you just haven't gotten back to for ages. In a church this size, I'm sure that there are tension points. We've grown a lot, right? But in this church of this size, I'm sure that there are tension points about others that are below the surface, that are hidden from view that you know for yourself you've got bottled up and you just don't want to deal with it. Maybe for you, instead of avoiding it, you can love them. Maybe it means forgiveness. Maybe it means reconciliation. For some others, it might mean going beyond church and loving those who are difficult that maybe aren't our brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps in your building or your street or work or social group. I hope for all of us, it might mean serving those in society that are considered difficult. Right, the homeless, for example, the ill, whether physically or mentally, the marginalized, the, cu- the current situation with the whole asylum seeker refugee. Right, what are we doing as a church to love those who are considered difficult by our leaders and by the people that are in our nation? And I hate to be painting all these things with such broad brushes, right? But maybe for you, I want to encourage you to think about two questions, right? One, who would I normally consider difficult? And two, how would it look to witness Calvary-shaped love to them? Those two questions. Who would I normally consider difficult? And how would it look to witness Calvary-shaped love to them? And hopefully we'll have some time to think about during response time. But just to really wrap up, I want to just suggest three principles to remember as we do that. And as, as we think about it and as we hopefully eventually love. Firstly, remember that we're all difficult people. Yeah, before God, we're all difficult people. Even worse, we were His enemies. And while we were difficult and while we, while, we, while we were enemies, while we were opposing him, Christ still died for us. And that should be the paradigm and the frame for how we love others. Secondly, remember that loving needs to be realistic, biblically realistic. That means don't expect transformation overnight. Sure, God could do it, but that'd be the exception, not the norm. 
And so the Bible paints the portrait of the Christian life and the Christian growth as slow and steady. So don't give up too quickly on those that are difficult. The Bible is optimistic about change. There is progress, but it is slow and it's incremental. Keep that in mind as we love others. And thirdly, and this is a big one for all of those who are used to uh, Excel spreadsheets and models and all that sort of stuff. Love is not about efficiency. It's not. For those of us who love, and I'm one of them, love getting things done quickly and efficiently, loving people is probably the most inefficient thing you could do. But the goal isn't efficiency, is it? It's imitating Christ. If Jesus' goal was efficiency, he would have gone mad at John 13 when, when he was washing his disciples' feet. Because remember, in the, who was there? Who was there? Right? He, you've got the disciples, some of the disciples, they're bickering over each other in the middle of Jesus washing their feet about who's greater. You've got Judas about to walk out and betray him. And you've got Peter, who is moments away from declaring that he will never deny Jesus. Love isn't about efficiency. But still, Jesus gets down on his knees and loves them by washing their feet. Church, let's love the way that God has defined love. Let me pray.